All right, good morning. We're going to be in Exodus 32 this morning again, slowly making our way through, but we'll actually finish chapter 32 today. <laughs> it doesn't end well, though, I hate to tell you. <laughs> let's, let's pray first. Lord, Father in heaven, we are so grateful. We're so grateful that you love us, that you have provided your word, and we want to hear from you. We want to know from your word how to live. Father, do not allow us to be the same person that leaves here as came in. Speak to us through your word. Amen. So we're continuing to work our way through Exodus. And let me kind of do a recap. Moses had been up on the mountain for 40 days, 40 nights, meeting with God. He had heard God's law. He had written down God's word. He had seen the plans for God's holy tabernacle. And now it was time for the prophet to go back down the mountain. Now, the Israelites had been the recipients of immense blessing, deliverance, provision, the law, the covenant, the ark, the tabernacle, the priests. And now, what do they do but turn to a golden calf? So to summarize what the Israelites had done, they had corrupted themselves. They had turned aside quickly from his commands. They had made for themselves a golden calf, worshipped the golden calf, sacrificed to the golden calf. And then they said, regarding this calf, these are your gods, O Israel. Wow. So as I think about what all is going on here, Moses and Aaron, there's a couple of things that I was thinking about. And, and if you remember when Aaron or Moses and Aaron were coming down, they heard a sound. Aaron thought it was a sound of war, but they heard a sound even before they got back to the camp. And the sounds were, what you shaking, Greg? Not Aaron. I'm sorry, not, not Aaron, but uh, Joshua. Uh, Aaron was causing the sounds. Uh, yeah, sorry, Joshua. But the, the thing that I was thinking about is Joshua couldn't discern the sound. But Moses could. And one of the things I think in our own life that we can apply to that is we need to be the people that can discern the right sounds. That can discern the evidence of evil. We need to be the people that have the ability to discern what is irreverent, what is worldly, what is idolatrous. We talked about how Moses' anger was righteous. Righteous indignation is the only right response to idolatry. And, when, and we ask the question, where is our righteous indignation about, regarding idolatry today? Are we comfortable? Are we unperturbed with the behavior that we see around us? I've also pointed out that one evidence of idolatry 
or how to determine if we have idolatry in our own hearts is to examine what angers us. Are we angered because we get slighted by others? Are we angered because we do not get our way? Or do we get angry when God doesn't get his way? Moses had a zero tolerance for idolatry. Aaron didn't. And I also pointed out, and just to remind you that I kind of gave a definition, a very simple definition of what is an idol. Anything that displaces God in your heart, that's an idol. So, Now that we're kind of caught up, let's continue in Exodus 32, and we're up to verse 25. And one other thing I want to just remember what Moses had done. He had smashed the Ten Commandments. He had reduced this golden calf to a pile of dust. He mixed it with water. He made the people drink it. Moses had confronted Aaron for his role in the rebellion. But the prophet wasn't finished yet. The people had not suffered the full consequences of their sin. They had not made atonement. No one had made atonement for this sin. And so what comes next? Now Moses saw that the people were out of control. For Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies. Do you realize that this is kind of the legacy of Aaron? Pretty sad. Aaron and his crowdsourced deity. Israel, even after the calf was gone, Israel was in a state of rebellion. The phrase here, out of control, conveys, conveys the idea that they were completely given over to their desires, to their fleshly desires. It's the absence of disciplined behavior. They were without any moral restraints. Basically, it implies that they were committing sexual sin. This idolatry led to immorality, as idolatry always does. And who was responsible for this? Well, yes, the people of Israel were the ones out of control, but Aaron was to blame. Scripture says he let them get out of control. He had failed to deal with the people's sin in a godly, courageous way. Aaron had basically given in to their sinful proposals. And the problem wasn't just that they were sinning, there's a problem that no one held them accountable. And so long as there was no discipline, the situation would only get worse. And I would argue that the same principle holds true in the church. People need to be held accountable for sin. Uh, Many people argue that discipline, there's a book called uh, The Marks of the Church that lists about 10 items that uh, 
uh, are exhibited when in a true Christian church. And one of those marks of the church is church discipline. They argue that unless there's good discipline, calling out, pointing out sin, the church ends up looking exactly like the world. What's the result of that? Both the people inside the church and outside get confused about what it means to be a Christian. And this is what is so tragic with the Israelites. They were, they were failing to fulfill their God-given calling. That calling was to glorify God among the nations. But they had become an object of scorn and derision among the nations. They had basically become a laughingstock to their enemies. This is what you think of the God that brought you out of Egypt? The God that parted the Red Sea? You turn away from him so quickly and worship a golden calf? You see, by their rebellion, these people who were supposed to be an example to the nations of the world had undermined their mission. This is what happens when any of God's people fail to be godly. For us, unbelievers are always watching and whenever they see Christians behaving badly, they make fun of the church. And I would say have a right to make fun of the church. You know, few things I would say are more destructive to the work and witness of Christians than Christians who bring the name of Christ in disrepute, who bring shame upon the name of Christ by their actions. And I was trying to come up with some examples. I think that Christians who look back longing for the things that they left behind. That could be a form of idolatry. Talking about the great sacrifices that they made in order to become a Christian. That's that type of conduct makes a bad impression on the unsaved. I mean, think about it. If salvation, if our salvation is worth anything, it's worth everything. When we consider what we gave up for eternity's sake, from eternity's viewpoint, we should see that as totally worthless. Or what about Christians that actually return to those things that they once renounced or once counted as sinful? So when Moses realized that the Israelites were sinning, he realized that something had to be done. So Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for Yahweh, come to me. Whoever is on the side of the Lord. This is, not, this is not the time to compromise. There is no opportunity for the concealment of sin. When there is apostasy, there cannot be neutrality. No. Moses, and this is important too, Moses did not call those who had never deviated from the Lord. He did not call those who had not worshipped. He just said, whoever's on the Lord's side... Stand by me. 
So he was calling for those no matter what they had done, those who were now prepared to acknowledge the authority of their king. In one sense, this was almost an act of amnesty, but it required an immediate decision. And where Moses stood was important as well. Moses positioned himself at the entrance to the camp, and this meant that he was between the rest of the camp and Mount Sinai. So moving to Moses' side physically involved a renunciation of everything that was going on inside the camp. It also involved moving closer to the mountain, which was ablaze with the Lord's presence. So Moses, being the Lord's appointed mediator, moving to him was a recognition of who Yahweh is and that Yahweh is sovereign. The men who answered this call were the Levites. These were the men of Moses' own tribe and they gathered around him. You know, it's, it's not clear how much or how little they had participated. Scripture doesn't say that, but given Aaron's own involvement, there's no good reason to assume that many of the Levites uh, were immune from the rebellion. And even if they had not actually worshipped the golden calf, they would still be guilty because they had not spoken out against the rebellion. But now, but now they were ready to renounce their error and commit themselves to Yahweh. And this, this is a decision that everyone has to make. Are we with God or not? Are you with him or are you against him? There, there comes a time when er, in everybody's life that they have to make this decision. I mean, Jesus even said, he, he who is not with me is against me. And if we do not decide for Christ, as I said earlier, there is no neutrality, then we are siding against him. Am I with Jesus? Do I believe that he is the divine son of God, true man as well as very God? Am I trusting in his death and resurrection on his death on the cross, his resurrection as full atonement for my sin? Do I believe that his resurrection gives me eternal life? Do I serve him as Lord? We cannot simply stay where we are. If we want to be with God, we have to leave our sin and rally behind Jesus. And this is, this is a decision that we made when we first came to Christ. But it's also a decision that we make every day in the Christian life. Who is on the Lord's side? Are you for him or against him with these words that you speak? With every thought that we think, every word we speak, every action we take, we are making a stand. If we do not speak the truth, we are false. If we do not preserve our purity, 
we are unholy. If we do not promote justice, we're unrighteous. If we do not sacrifice for others, we are selfish. If we do not walk in humility, we're prideful. Just as there was no neutrality in the camp of Israel, there is no spiritual neutrality either. We must take sides every day. Every day we take a stand. We're either with God or against God. You know, once we side with God, we have to be willing to do what He says. And that mean, and that's what it means to be on His side. Being willing to do what He says. It means obeying Him no matter what. And how many of you, God tells you in advance what He's going to do in your life? No. Rarely. So ordinarily, God does not tell us in advance what it's going to include when we follow him, when we join his side. All we know is that from now on, everything we are, everything we have is at his disposal. And it's to be used in whatever way he thinks he knows is best. Usually we don't know the details. And this was true for the Levites when they joined up and, and stood beside Moses and said, we are on the side of the Lord. Who could have imagined what God was going to ask the Levites to do. You know, the first thing Moses said, stand here to be on the side of Yahweh. And then Moses said to these Levites, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, every man among you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from the gate to gate in the camp. And kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. Now this was a shocking assignment. And you notice this was not Moses' idea here. This command came directly from God. And this was the first thing God told the Levites to do when they came to his side. Was to carry out his judgment against Israel's sin. And there's no question whether this was just or not. The Israelites had made a covenant with God in which they had promised not to make idols, not to have other gods. And the Lord's commandment, the Lord's requirement is not to be trifled with. Fearful consequences result. I mean, they, they, had, they were still in idolatry. They were still in sexual sin. And this is not to be downplayed. If the people as a whole 
would have responded to Moses' rallying cry? Things might have been different, but they did not. There were consequences. And if we have trouble understanding this, or if we have trouble with this passage of Scripture, then then I would say we don't understand what a wicked thing it is to worship other gods. Israel was called to be a holy nation through which all the nations of the world were to be blessed. But the Israelites had turned away from God and unless God did something to bring them back, he would no longer have a people to call his own. But even in his wrath, God showed mercy. We read on that not everyone was killed. Scripture says, so the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And about 3,000 men uh, of the people fell that day. Now you think about, wow, that's a lot, 3,000 men. But instead of thinking about how many perished, we need to think about God's mercy and how many were saved. It says 3,000. Well, that's 3,000 men out of an estimated 600,000 men in the camp of Israel. So that 3,000 out of 600,000 is one half of 1%. So only one half of 1% of the adult male population received God's judgment. And so the amazing thing here is how few were destroyed, not how many. And it was those who were most directly responsible for the idolatry that had taken place. And the Bible doesn't say who was executed, but I want to point out that when God told them to kill their brothers and their neighbors, it the intent wasn't to go out and kill your brother or your neighbor. The intent was that your loyalty to God should take precedence over your loyalty to your family, over loyalty to friends. The Levites were not to let the ties of blood or friendship hinder them from their service to God, not even family and friends. Which is still, even that is a hard thing to swallow for us, for us, I think. You know, we like to think that idolatry really isn't this bad. But this is what God wanted his people to see, that there is nothing worse in the world, nothing worse in the universe, nothing worse in the cosmos than idolatry. Nothing more dangerous than an idol. Nothing more malignant than that which is worshipped, which is not God. It's the eternal wrath of God that the people bring upon themselves when they make idols and worship them. And this is made abundantly clear here. You know, if God had wanted to, he could have punished the people himself. But he gave the Levites the power to carry out basically uh, his wrath. And the Levites obeyed by putting unrepentant sinners to death. 
and they were commended for this. After they finished this grim work, Scripture says, Then Moses said, Be ordained today to Yahweh, for every man has been against his son and against his brother, in order that he may bestow a blessing upon you today. So by displaying their complete obedience to God and their complete opposition to sin, their willingness to oppose sin wherever it was found, the Levites had virtually been installed to the office that God had designated for them. This was the reward that God would bestow upon them for their faithfulness. I mean, this is a hard passage for us, I'll admit. I mean, it shows, though, that God's claim, God's claim on us, is stronger than even the claims of family and friendship. Jesus said, He who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And this does not mean that we should hate the people in our families, but it does mean that if they are believers or not, our love for them must submit to the higher love of God. Now this passage also teaches us, uh, Bill, you hit upon it somewhat in worship, but this passage teaches us that we should be, I would say, use the word ruthless in our pursuit of holiness. We should be ruthless in our pursuit of God. God was showing the Levites that if they wanted to serve God in his tabernacle, they had to pursue absolute purity among the people of God. I think the same is true for us as followers of Jesus Christ. We must put idolatry and immorality to death, not only as individuals, but in the church, in the church, big church as well. Now, God has not given us the power of the sword. But the weapons that we fight with, they're not the weapons of this world. Our sword is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. For the Israelites, what drew distinction between holiness and sin was the sharp edge of the Levite's blade. But what draws the distinction for us is the Word of God which clearly distinguishes between right and wrong. And to the extent that we have any power to carry out judgment, it is through the exercise of divining or, you know, speaking out the word. It's the exercise of looking at the word and saying, this is sin. This is not, this is sin. You know, there's one difference This is one of the differences between the Old and New Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, God's people didn't have the power of the sword. Under the New Covenant, we have the power of the Word. We have the power of church discipline. But again, when it comes to idolatry and immorality, there can be no compromise. Sin must be dealt with in a godly way. 
whenever Christians are involved in anything that resembles false worship, or when Christians turn God into something that he's not, or when Christians claim that they can find salvation in something other than Christ, then we need to call it out. We need to stand like Moses did and not compromise like Aaron. Whenever we see the church, whenever we see people doing things like the Israelites did, they need to be confronted. I would argue, though, that we should never treat sinners harshly. But their sin should be dealt with firmly. And this is according to clear teaching in Scripture. You know, you would think that by the time the Levites had finished, that God would have been finished dealing with Israel's sin. The golden calf had been destroyed. Aaron had been confronted. The people had tasted the bitterness of their idolatry. The ringleaders of the rebellion had been put to death, but there was still a problem. Uh, Here's a a quote that I found from uh, uh, James Montgomery Boyce. He says, from a human point of view, Moses had dealt with the sin. The leaders were punished. Aaron was rebuked. The allegiance of the people was at least temporarily reclaimed. All seemed to be well, but God still waited in wrath on that mountain. What was Moses to do? By that time, not all of the law had been given, but Moses had received enough of it for us to know something, enough to know the horror of sin and the uncompromising nature of God's righteousness. Had God not already said, you will have no other gods before me? Had he not promised to visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations? Who was Moses to think that the limited judgment that he had begun would satisfy the holiness of God? The people had suffered for their sin, but they had not yet satisfied the wrath of God. I mean, how could they? They had broken a covenant that had been sealed with blood. And this meant that by the breaking of the covenant that they all deserved to die. Fortunately, God had promised not to destroy them. So what could atone for their guilt? Was there anything that their mediator could do? Moses wasn't sure as he says now it happened on the next day that Moses said to the people you yourselves have committed a great sin but now I'm going to speak to Yahweh perhaps I can make atonement for your sin perhaps Moses could make atonement Boyce goes on to 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 kind of describe the prophet struggling to figure out what he's going to say to God. So we think about this. The night passed and morning came when Moses was to reascend the mountain. He'd been thinking all night long. Sometime during the night, 
There, maybe there's a way to possibly divert the wrath of God against the people. He'd remembered the sacrifices of the Hebrew patriarchs and the newly started sacrifice of the Passover. Certainly God had shown by these sacrifices that he was prepared to accept an innocent substitute in place of the just death of a sinner. His wrath could sometimes fall on a substitute. Perhaps God would accept. When morning came, Moses ascended the mountain with great determination. Reaching the top, he began to speak to God. And this is what Moses said. Moses returned to Yahweh and said, Alas, the people have committed a great sin and they have made gods of gold for themselves. But now, if you would forgive their sin, and understand he was speaking with great intensity and great emotion, and he was unable to even complete this plea for the divine forgiveness that he began. If you're willing to forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. This was not the first time that Moses had interceded for Israel. Remember, he had prayed for the people when they were trapped between Pharaoh and the, the, the sea. He prayed for them in Marah when the water was bitter. He prayed for them at uh, Rephidim when there was no water at all. He prayed for them when the Amalekites attacked. And he had to lift his arms up all day to win the victory. Moses prayed. And when Moses prayed, God answered. God made it so that the people walked on dry land and the, the sea separated. God gave them sweet water. God delivered them from their enemies. Moses had prayed just a few days earlier than this when he first heard about the golden calf. He had prayed arguing on the basis of God's own character and promises that God should not destroy Israel. And now Moses was praying again. He began by freely confessing the, the sins of Israel, which he had just seen in all its depravity. In fact, the, the vocabulary of sin, it appears eight times in just a few short verses. The people had sinned a great sin, but Moses was asking God to forgive them. Moses knew what the outcome should be. So he asked, if you don't forgive them, but if not, blot me out from, the, from your book, which you have written. Now in the ancient world, it was common for kings to keep a registry of their citizens. Basically, you would take a census and write down every citizen's name in a book. And when that person died... You blotted their name out from that book. Ezekiel refer, referred to this practice when he wrote concerning false prophets. They will not be in the council of my people, nor will they be written down in the registry of the house of Israel. But the Bible also uses this idea to refer to eternal salvation. The book of life is where God registers the citizens of his heavenly kingdom. When David said of his enemies, may they be blotted out of the book of life and may they not 
be recorded with the righteous. He was asking for justice in this life and in the life to come. And by the time of the New Testament, the book of life plainly refers to eternal life that God has promised for his elect. The only people who are allowed to enter God's heavenly kingdom are those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Either way, the point is clear. Uh, Moses was willing to have his name blotted out of the book of life for his people. Aaron, if we continue the contrasting them, Aaron was weak and had complied with the sinful proposals of his people. But Moses took it upon himself to take the ultimate responsibility for his people. This seems, I mean, this seems all the more remarkable when we remember that God had offered to destroy the people and start over with Moses. But Moses said, look, Lord, if you have to destroy somebody, destroy me, but save my people. When people sin, they need a substitute. And I think Moses was getting this. He was understanding this. That the person who had the responsibility to make the atonement was the person whom God had chosen to serve as the mediator. In, in this covenant, sin could be forgiven through the sacrifice of a representative as long as it was the right person one man could die for the people's sins Moses was presenting himself as a sacrifice of atonement offering himself to God as a substitute for Israel offering to pay the penalty for the sins of the people This offer that Moses made reminds us of what Jesus said. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And Jesus had also said, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And Moses was in a sense a good shepherd. He was willing to lay down his life for his sheep. But God did not allow Moses to pay that price. It would take another, greater mediator before one could bear the penalty of another person's sin. It would take the mediator of whom it said, he has no sin. So God, Yahweh, said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But now go, guide the people where I told you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. And God followed through on his threat. Then Yahweh smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. This was a matter of individual responsibility. And Moses could not take it upon himself 
on behalf of, the, of others. Now, the exact nature of this punishment is not clearly defined, but those peoples whose, whose names were written in the book, in God's book, we know that they enjoy the full benefits of his kingdom, not just entry into the promised land, the earthly land of promise, but into his heavenly kingdom as well. And to have one's name blotted out is to perish. So did God smite them with a plague? Uh, some translations call it a, a, a plague, but it's really unclear. Uh, some people argue that it could simply refer to the fact that this generation at this time never reached the promised land. They all died out in the wilderness. Although it, it could be an outbreak of something that, uh, some type of temporary plague. Either way, the point's the same. The people had to bear the punishment for their own sin. They could not escape judgment by transferring their guilt to Moses. Why not? Why not? Why didn't God accept the sacrifice of Moses that Moses offered? Moses could not die for his people because he himself was also a sinner. Remember, just one of his failings, Moses was a bad-tempered man. So bad, if you remember early on, that he had killed a man. So in order to make atonement for Israel's sin, it needed to be someone who was perfect. God is willing to let someone die for someone's sin. But he can only accept a sacrifice that is perfect, untainted by sin. So Moses couldn't do that. He could not atone for sin. You know, as we read through Scripture, we keep looking, we, we keep looking for a Savior. If you're reading through the Bible, you can see how the people need a Savior. The people need a Savior here, and Moses wasn't it. But everyone that we read about that, that attempts to save the people, they're still sinners. Except Jesus. He's the only one who can make atonement. Because he's the only one without sin. He is the only one qualified to offer himself as an atonement for our sin. He's the only one who can take on the wrath and curse of God in our place. He's the only one who through his resurrection can give us eternal life. And even here, see, I would argue that every text of scripture points to Christ and the more we study Moses the more we learn about a Christ like figure in the Old Testament this is the way Bible this is the way scripture works 
the story of salvation, I think, as we progress on through the scripture, gets clearer and clearer. The more we read, the more we see the full extent of our own sin. The more we see how it is just for God to have wrath against our sin. But this should not lead to depression or despair because we also see the forgiveness that God offers through the sacrifice of our mediator, Christ. Who is on the side of the Lord? Well, everyone who comes over to the side of Christ will be saved. Everyone. And so we've got to ask ourselves day in and day out, am I on the side of the Lord? Let's pray. Lord, Father, we do thank you for this text. We pray that the Holy Spirit would apply this to our hearts to more conform us to Christ. Open our eyes to what it means to be on the Lord's side. with every thought with every word with every action may we be on the Lord's side give us the strength the the steadfastness to stand opposed to idolatry and every sin wherever it is found Thank you, Father. Amen.